All right, welcome. I'm very excited here to start the first podcast. This is my first time actually podcasting, and I am very pleased that I have distinguished guests here, Dr. Colonel uh, Wesley Palmer, the current uh, and soon retiring director of the U.S. Air Force's International Health Specialist IHS program on here to talk with us and all of you about the program, about global health, global health engagement. Um, and uh, we'll hear a lot about uh, his backgrounds and his thoughts on some different things uh, throughout this podcast. Uh, so uh, welcome Colonel Palmer and thanks for joining us and thanks for being my guinea pig as I try to do this uh, podcast for the first time. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's a first for me, too, so we're both podcast versions, I take it. And I also want to introduce our other guest, Mrs. Uh, Kelly uh, Schlitt, who works in the headquarters Air Force IHS office with Colonel Palmer. Kelly, you want to say hello? Hi. Yep. Also my first podcast. Happy to join. Thanks for joining us. So this podcast actually marks the milestone of the 20-year milestone of the Air Force IHS program, and it also marks the end of Colonel Palmer's distinguished Air Force career. So um, Colonel Palmer um, is a family practice physician who transitioned into uh, becoming a full-time international health specialist, and I hope to explore that a little bit. But, but first, I wanted to give Colonel Palmer a compliment, and actually Kelly a compliment, on um, the documents that inspired me to even do this podcast in the first place. I was just sorting through the dozens and dozens of emails that I get every day. I got an email from Kelly um, with these global health engagement quarterlies that Kelly wrote in conjunction with Colonel Palmer that uh, really, really summarize very nicely and keep everybody informed about what the Air Force IHS program is doing. And those haven't been, Colonel Palmer started those. Those weren't done until about, uh, what, two years ago now. And I found them very informative. Uh, so I wanted to compliment both of you on the writing and the content of those. Um, they were very valuable for me, and I'll post them all on a link uh, below this podcast uh, for our audience. Um, back in the day, uh, there was tons of money going around. And we all just, you know, met at conferences and things like that. But now with budget cuts combined with COVID, uh, we really rely on things like your global health engagement quarterlies to keep um, everyone informed of, of what's going on in the program. So very much compliments on those uh, those publications, and I post them for everybody else. Um, so thanks for that. Okay, so uh, Colonel Palmer, most of our audience will be vaguely familiar already, if not very familiar with the Air Force IHS program, but some of them will not. Uh, do you want to just tell us basically what the, for those who are not familiar, you want to just tell them what the Air Force IHS program is? Sure. So it's a um, program that started, as you mentioned, about 20 years ago uh, yeah, by, and, and was the creation, the brainchild of the uh, Surgeon General of the Air Force at the time, General P.K. Carlton. And it really is a, it's focusing on developing medics and identifying medics um, in the Air Force who have international and cross-cultural competency along with experience in working in international health environments. And so combining, combining that regional uh, foreign area officer expertise with the 
international medicine expertise and identifying those medics within the Air Force that we can develop and grow to um, in, in, in develop and grow in, in, in different ways um, to be utilized in, in the Air Force Medical Service. So when uh, you say medics, you're talking physicians, definitely. Uh, nurses join the Air Force IHS program. Uh, medical planners also, I imagine? Everybody, everybody. Every Air Force specialty code within uh, the Air Force Medical Service. So uh, laboratory it, scientists, PhDs, yeah. they can all be Air Force IHS. Absolutely. Now, I mean, you'll, you're, you'll certainly have different career fields that have different needs, um, depending on different regions. But yeah, anybody can because, you know, um, it, we're part of a system, and a medical system, a military medical system specifically. Um, and when we're working with international partners and we're, we're trying to learn best practices from them and then we're, we're, they're, we're trying to share our best practices, um, vice versa. Um, you know, it, you know, a system, a, a healthcare system doesn't run just on doctors and it doesn't just run on doctors and nurses and med techs. I mean, you've got a whole supporting infrastructure that goes into it. Um, so yeah, we want, we want, we would like to identify as many people and as many AFSCs as possible. And yeah. like I said, I mean, utilization varies, right? You're not always going to need a, a, a biomedical equipment technician um, for every program that you do with every country. If you're doing, if we're doing exchanges with Australia, um, and that's where our focus is in the Pacific. I'm just using an example, a random example, you know. I think Australia probably has their biomedical equipment or BMET programs down very well. But if you're working, say, with, um, you know, a developing country, say, you know, pick a Southern Hemisphere country, you know, there's plenty of them that, you know, we can use as examples. You know, um, they're gonna, they're probably not gonna have as robust, robust of a BMET program. And so maybe that's, you know, something that, that is something that you work on at some point in time in your engagements. Yeah, so in the most basic sense, if the program was founded around 2001, before 2001, what was the military and the Air Force's global health engagement experience like missing? Like, what well, you know, the, I, yeah. you know I, I can't, speak from firsthand knowledge. I'm only speaking from secondhand knowledge on this, just kind of what I've heard through the lore, if you will, of, of the program. And it, it was just basic. I mean, we were doing, we were doing international engagement missions with folks, but um, it, it was just, it, we were tasking people to go out and do missions and, and going down. And, and it seemed to be a, a recurring theme, particularly in the South Commodore, um, was people that would they'd go down and there'd be like all these problems with the mission identified in after action reports that probably could have been easily mitigated or overcome had had people understood where their partners were coming from had some language capability to communicate and, you know to, to bridges language barriers um you know and a whole host of issues and so 
it was just kind of general Carlton after, you know, being in, in the AFMS for many years and having seen these reports repeatedly throughout his tenure, it was just kind of like, uh, why are we just kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again? If we had some Spanish speaking uh, medics go down, people that understood the countries that they were working with, understood these health systems that, that they're engaging with, yeah, let's see if things work out better. Yeah. yeah. So you're mentioning that, a, that was the hypothesis, right? I mean, there was nothing proven at the time. Yeah. So on that hypothesis, the hypothesis, you started listing a bunch of traits and characteristics that people would either have or acquire on a skill set uh, for doing these global health engagements better. Um, can we review those for myself uh, and for the audience? Um, what what exactly is the skill set? of an Air Force International Health Specialist. I heard you mention language capability. I imagine sure. that's the first. What, what other parts of the, well, the actually, skill set actually, are there? In my mind, actually, in my mind, it's not the first, right? In my mind, it's cross-cultural competency. Um, and language is a close second after that. That's just that's just Wes Palmer's opinion, okay? Sure. Because um, you, you, uh, you, there might be a lot of partners you're engaging with, but if, if you focus, if, if if you're if you're in an area if you're in a, a geographic area say Southeast Asia, you know one lang what if you focus on one language one language is only going to get you working in with one country and so then you're pretty pigeonholed right. If you're trying to work if you're trying to work across, once again using the Southeast Asian example, uh, if you're trying to work across you know Thailand Burma, uh, Laos Cambodia Vietnam. Indonesia, um, and all you speak is Cambodian, then you're you're going to be you're going to be and 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 you've got no other cross cultural competency skills other than a Cambodian familiarization, and you really can't relate with Thais very well, because uh, for whatever reason, you know that that's not going to go very far, right? Uh, for, yeah. for what we need, so. Um, yeah, certainly. Language, if, if you're in, if if you're working in areas that are a little bit more homogenous in kind of the the language aspect of things, certainly uh, South America AOR. You know, other than a few examples, uh, a, a few exceptions. You know, Spanish dominates, right? Um, and you can you can you can translate that across a few other places. Um, uh, but uh, you know, yeah. Africa, Africa. You, you know, you've got you've got a, a handful of languages that you can use. But um, they're you know English, English being yeah. one of them. But you know, once again, you know, those are those are and 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 not to get. I'm not trying to get political here, but those are um, those are colonial languages, and so you've got you've got you know various local languages and various you know um and in some countries many different local languages some yeah. that are national and some that are not so it, it all depends you got to be able to relate across multiple different levels so cross-cultural sorry I, I know I, I went on a long long time there but yeah cross-cultural is, is 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 key yeah i do i am aware of the perennial debate in the air force ihs program of which is more important, language or cross-cultural competency. Um, I, I joined the Air Force IHS program actually in 2006. I don't know why they picked me, but they did. And 
ever since then, every single year, it's been like, what's more important, cross-cultural competency or language? And I never took part in that data. I got no debate. I have no dog in that fight. But if I can ask you, since you put cross-cultural competency first, what exactly does cross-cultural competency mean? I mean, to, to a cynic, it might just mean someone is just sensitive and they're not like a you know, US-centric, we are the best, ugly American, rah, rah, rah. I mean, is that pretty much what it means? It just means like you're sensitive to other people. Uh, is there something, what else is there in cross-cultural competency? I think your cynical view, if, if you're using this, the cynics view, not that it's a cynical view, but the cynics view, I think in some ways, I mean, that, that, that could be an accurate interpretation of it. I mean, it all depends on um, what, uh, I mean, and, and there's, and there, there's different, the, the hard thing about cross-cultural competency is it's, it's very, it is hard to test and measure and, de and, and I, and develop. It's one of those things, you know it when you see it, right? Old adages. Um, and I, I, I try to, I try to use, to rephrase it and not use the, the cynics view there. I would say it's, being comfortable, not just being comfortable, but being able and willing and, 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 and comfortable and working. Well, no, being comfortable, comfortable and respectful. Sure. And respectful. Um, yeah. But people can be respectful and not comfortable though. sometimes too. Right. I mean, you can, you can, you can kind of on the inside kind of be like, Ugh, you know, a bottle of nerves, but you know, on the outside, you're, you're still showing respect. But I, I think it's just kind of a, 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 a being, but being able to operate in an environments that are completely unfamiliar and unknown to you, at least initially, and yeah. then and and then identify out of those environments, you know, those things that work well and those that don't. And so it's you know having an open mind, being receptive. Um, being being sensitive is part of it. Being empathetic, I mean, all of the, all of those traits, um, and 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 there's a whole laundry list. But the the problem from an institutional standpoint is, like I said, is how how do you test measure that you know across a forty thousand person force, and you know you can't sit everybody down and put them in a simulation training in an event, and 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 you know even in that one event they may do fine, but then you throw them in another situation and you know they flail. That makes me wonder, too, if someone could fake it. Like, I can't fake speaking French, but I wonder if I could fake being culturally competent, you know, and be like, you know, I'm really, like, you know, interested in French culture, and I like French food and stuff like that. I definitely don't like French food, but I could, you know, fake it like I do, you know, in a um, certain situation. So, uh, interesting. Yeah. Sure. Fake it till you make it kind of thing, Brett. <laughs> exactly. That's what I do my whole career, actually. Um, but that's a whole nother story. Uh, we won't get sidetracked talking about how I basically fake my whole way through life. But anyway, so uh, in terms of IHS uh, skill set, then we have uh, bullet number one uh, across in. I wasn't planning on putting these in order, but I find it interesting that you started ranking them. But that's cool. Uh, number one, cross-cultural competency. Um, is language number two or is something else in front of language? Well, um, I mean, we so you've got what we use from the 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 special experience identifier criteria right now. And so language, language be, would be a close second. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to rank order what's more important than that. It, it's yeah. kind of, 
Maybe it, we'll just maybe we'll just let, let's just educate our audience about what the skill set is then, and we we won't put the pressure on ourselves to rank order them because that's gonna, yeah. as you know, that'll create a whole lot of debate within IHS. Um, but just listing the skill set for people who are not familiar with IHS: cross-cultural competency, language, and then what is it? A general competency in your primary medical specialty, essentially, right? Is that what you described? Yeah, I mean, you got you got to be good at what you do, right? I mean. Yeah. <laughs> If you're if you're fake, if you're faking being a doctor and you're going out and you go to work with other doctors, how can you how can you uh, how can you effectively communicate and, and work work across the aisle, if you will? Um, yeah, I mean, so being good in your job, um, like I said, uh, you know, an understanding of um, international health systems going in. I mean, I mean, we're, we're awarding people a, a special experience identifier, which means you've developed a special experience. And so you've done some work um, working in working in these in these other systems, because uh, from a systems perspective, you know, um, even even in the US, you know, one healthcare entity is not like another one. And so there's a learning curve. And then when you get outside the US, um, so so having that and having that, having that regional and geopolitical understanding, of kind of how 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 these other 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 um, other 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 things work? Um, yeah. So and and you know, I mean, as far as kind of you know our IHS skill set, I mean, we 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 start people off at, at different levels. You know, you started like an, an entry level, and then the more experienced you get, we've got you know three different special experience identifiers. So the more experience you get um, in, in this, the, the higher up the yeah. awarding of those uh, special experience identifiers. Uh, I, sh I should probably explain that to the audience. Um, so the SEI stands for special experience identifier. And I don't mean to be insulting the intelligence of, of a majority of our audience, but I'll make sure that people who are new to hearing about the Air Force IHS program totally get where we're coming from. SEI special experience identifier is um, something that the Air Force awards, the Air Force IHS program awards for uh, international health specialist uh, special qualifications. It actually goes on your like military transcript, if you will, your military record, and identifies you as being someone who is specially qualified, specially experienced um, to do these kind of global health engagements. I actually remember um being in a worldwide meeting we're actually in geneva in 2008 ish 2009 time frame and we were establishing slash like formalizing the um idea for the sei in the air force ihs and in the big meeting i don't really say much because i was kind of junior but in the big meeting everybody came up with all of these qualifications that you got to have and then just as we started to break for lunch somebody astutely noted that hey you know if we actually make these the qualifications all of these the qualifications for the sei like almost none of us would actually qualify for the sei and everyone's like oh okay all right let's break for lunch and then regroup on this and then in the afternoon session it was determined that hey well maybe we should do then is we should have different levels like we should have a an entry level sei a mid-level sei and an expert level sei and so yeah. people could actually be identified for a little bit of skills and then progress through the ranks does that sound about right it is and and so fundamentally i mean uh, in that progression we've identified 10 core competencies uh, they're listed out in the Air Force instruction. That kind of is the the guiding document of the IHS program. And I'm not going to remember all ten right here. Sure. But no uh, 
you know, some of it, some of it is, you know, um, additional language competency, cross-cultural competency, uh, geopolitical uh, skill sets, um, health diplomacy is one of them, uh, strategic communication. And so it, it, it goes, it, you can see the variety. And, and you're not supposed to have a mastery in all of those as you come in, and you may be lacking in some areas. So that's why when we award the special experience identifier, it really focuses around, have you worked, have you, do you have experience working with other countries um, and, and their health systems? Do you have, can you demonstrate cross-cultural competency and primarily through an additional language capability? And, and then there's, there's some other uh, computer-based training that we require for folks that, you know, they get familiarization with some of those core competencies, but they're not necessarily expected to, you know, have that as part of their background, but they get exposed to what these other aspects are. Yeah, sounds good. You mentioned all these things were listed in the Air Force instruction for the IHS program. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's okay. it's it's Air Force instruction forty four dash one sixty two. Can you explain then how certain people, like a certain amount of people, I don't even know what the amount is, but a certain number of people have this SEI, yet they are working full time and full time jobs doing something totally non IHS related, like they're working an MTS or they're working a staff job somewhere or something. Yeah. And then other people are working full-time IHS jobs, like in IHS right. billets. Like, can you explain that? Yeah. So um, where to start on this? Um, I, I, I don't want to get too in the weeds on legal, legal requirements and funding requirements, but it, 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 does have, it does have background in there. So just, just to kind of, kind of caveat all of that, it, it depends on, you know, how our manpower billets are authorized, how Congress is authorizing stuff. Um, and, but so, you know, fundamentally, you know, in the Air Force Medical Service, the majority of what we do is part of the defense health program. And, and, and that's, and so you're, you're, you're working in an MTF, you're getting your skills, and then you're available to really to deploy and support the Air Force and the Joint Force if needed um, in, in contingency operations. I mean, that's kind of why we have a military medical service. And, and we, use, we use the MTFs as the basis for developing our competencies and, and developing our skills. Um, and so we, we award the special experience identifier We've got it roughly around 400 people, plus or minus, is it wax and wanes as people, you know, retire, separate, and, um, and, then, and then new people are awarded the SCI. Um, and, and the majority of those folks are, 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 are working in their primary job in a military treatment facility um, and, 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 doing, and doing their day-to-day -day job. And then we've, the Air Force has then task organized and, and as in most military bureaucracy, we have, we have different levels of staff organization and, and, um, and, and, how, and how our military forces are structured uh, across the world. And so we have, we have about 65, and, and once again, this kind of uh, goes up or down one or two, um, so we've got about 65 positions worldwide of people um, in full-time international health specialist billets. The majority of those folks are aligned to the Air Force component supporting the geographic combatant command around the world. Um, I'm not going to go and get, give you the Air Command at Staff College or the enlisted equivalent 
a kind of force structure around the world right now um <laughs> or 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 sure. or, oh, yeah. or, yeah. Our, or our joint partners version of that but just to know that you know we've got our geographic combatant commands and each of the services provides um their re their respective uh component to provide that so so let me let me just kind of finish that up before we clarify that so most of our air force ihs's are aligned with with on teams um that support a geographic region under that air component so pacific air forces you, you, um, air forces southern and we also have a handful of IHSs working at the COCOM level um, for those respective geographic combatants, combat commands as well. Yeah. So you've been living in Pentagon and now DHA world uh, for so long that let me just translate uh, some of that language into what I would call dumbed down Brad's understanding. Um, and sure. then for, and for, for any people who are just listening to this podcast who are completely even, not even in the military and unfamiliar with all that, and correct me if I'm wrong in my understanding, but I think I heard you say that you've got about 400 people around the world, give or take, who possess the SEI, the Special Experience Identifier, at any given time. So yep. they have applied for it. They have said, oh, of those like 10 things or so listed in the Air Force instruction that qualify someone to be recognized as having special experience and special qualifications for the Air Force SEI, about 400 of those people have been successfully recognized. The vast majority of those people are working full-time jobs doing something else, nurses, doctors, veterinarians, medical planners, PhDs, mm -hmm. whatever. And yeah. they're called upon uh, at when something is needed in a certain time or like they're trying to do a mission in a certain part of Africa or Southeast Asia or anywhere, um, they're, they're called upon as needed uh, based on that skill set. In addition to that and separate from that, there are 65, give or take, full-time billets, so actual jobs, full-time positions in various places all over the world uh, where someone who really wants to do international health or global health engagement can do it full-time. And those billets, those billets, I used to fill one of them also, they, my understanding is they used to mostly be at the combatant commands and for people who are not in the military, the, the military divides the world up into about six or seven different regions and they call them combatant commands. You got like AFRICOM, UCOM for, Eurocom, for European command, Pacific command, things like that. They divide those up into major commands or combatant commands and then they have a headquarters for each one. So I think back in the day, Air Force, uh, Air Force IHS used to put its full-time billets a lot of times at the combatant commands. What I think I heard you say now is that a lot of them have now been moved to the air component command. And essentially what that means is at the big combatant command headquarters, you have all the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, things like that. Underneath those, the individual services have their individual commands. The Air Force has its own, the Marines have their own, the Navy has their own. And what you're saying now is a lot of those full-time 65 billets are now at the Air Force specific commands. Does that sound right? Yep, that's okay. it. Excellent, excellent. Now we've dumped it down to Brad's level. And then I was wondering is how does someone who is, let's say they're an Air Force captain now there, um, you know, two years out of residency or something, they're a physician or a nurse or something, and they're interested in this whole IHS thing. How does that person 
kind of learn more about like how might I go about potentially doing an assignment in one of those billets? And I guess the, the second question that goes along with that is, do you want people, I don't know the answer to this question because I think it's changed over the years. Do you want people to jump into those billets and then jump out? Like it's a one-time career broadening experience, they used to call it. Or do you want people to do it as like the rest of their career? Like how does someone learn about, think about, transition into that kind of thing, fill those billets? What, what, would, you, what would you tell someone who asks that? Because I get asked that question all the time. And I have sure. my ideas, but I'm not sure if they're accurate. They're probably out of date. Okay, so two 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 real questions there. You know, um, you know one how one how do, where do you get the information, right? And so the info is we've got we've got information. Uh, we've got a Facebook page uh, that uh, Kelly and her team help uh, maintain and support. Twitter feeds with that. Um, we've got um, uh, on the AFMS uh, web page as well. There's there's articles, highlights. Um, We've got our GHE quarterly newsletter, and then we've got a link um, on the Knowledge Exchange as well that has as far as kind of the application materials, the skill sets, and all and all that. So that's how you know one at least understands you know um, getting into the program, and then what different people are um, are are doing um, as far as teams go. Uh, is is listed in that the GHE quarterly newsletter, and so reading that newsletter, seeing what the different teams are doing, um, is good. Um, and then working with your commander, um, that and and letting your commanders know that you have an interest in international health engagement, um, and 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 want to and want to do that type of work, and both uh, your your squadron commander and your group commander. Uh, both levels, uh, because the medical readiness office works for the group commander, um, and and that's where a lot of the taskings and the requests for support will come from. And um, if we get strong commander endorsements, you know that lets us know um, that people are capable and and able to do the job. And you know, and we draw from that pool of people for those full time the. Ideally, we're drawing from the people that also hold the SCI um, for the full-time positions. Um, now, to do your second question, as far as um, is this a is this a one-and-done career broadening position or is this um, um, a, a career? Well, primarily, the, the IHS program is modeled on the line of the Air Force's Foreign Area Officer program, um, and the FAO program was initially a career broadening program. Uh, recently, this past year, it's changed where when, when somebody becomes a, uh, a foreign area officer, their core Air Force specialty code, their career field changes. And that's much like what the Army does. I, don't, I can't remember how the Navy does, but in the Army, when you become a FAO, your career track then, and then you become a, a FAO and a specialist in, in, in that in that region of the world and, and, and specialty, and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get different assignments um, based upon on, on your regional expertise. Uh, we we still follow the career broadening model. Um, we're not uh, so where people kind of come in and out, uh, and partly uh, there's been lots of debate back and forth through the years. I don't want to get in the in the weeds on that, but uh, 
fundamentally we need to keep people uh, still competitive for promotion, right? We, we still live in an upper route system. I know there was some talk about changing that. Um, and I don't know where that has become. So if you want to stay a major and, and be a major for the rest of your career, or you want to be a, a tech sergeant and be a tech sergeant for the rest of your career, you, uh, there was some talk about allowing people to do that. I don't know if that officially has changed. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I was going to ask you, does um, does doing IHS um, hurt your potential for career progression? It's funny. You, I think you just said you, you're not sure. I, I think the answer to that, too, would be it's probably uh, I would say, core specific. Right? Yeah, it's core specific. I would say anybody in any core that does I, an, an IHS assignment is not detrimental to their career. And quite quite conversely, it can be very career enhancing, right, when it's viewed as a career, a career broadening tour. Um, lots, I've got lots of examples of people in very competitive, uh, um, career fields that have successfully moved on to, you know, 05, 06, when they come in as an 03, 04 and done a tour at an 03, 04. Um, so, and, and of course you've got other career fields where they're starved, they're starved for people at the top. So promotion rates are very high. Um, and so it's not as detrimental to stay in. IHS is a career like I did, you know, where I've done multiple back-to-back -back, uh, tours. You know, I mean, I so yeah, I've I've I'm I'm one of the exceptions, um, but I'm also in the medical corps, and um, by the function of the medical corps, um, we we have high rates of promotion. Can so. we talk about your uh, your career now? So you uh, joined the military when you went to undergrad on your own, or were you ROTC? No, no, no. I'm a I'm an Air Force Academy grad. Oh, okay. What year? Uh, so I graduated with the class of '94. Oh wow! So you graduated? Okay, I graduated high school '93. So okay, you're older than me. All right. So you, either that, or you're really smart and skipped a bunch of grades. All right. So Air Force Academy '94. I'm, I'm not you... Doogie. I'm not Doogie. Yeah. Did, did Air Force Academy '94, and then did you go right to med school after that? Did you do a, a military no, Air Force tour first? Yeah, so I um, I did a year um, as a line officer. Uh, so my first Air Force specialty code, I was a scientific analyst, and um, I I moved across town in Colorado Springs and was working out of uh, and and doing testing of something called the Space Defense System in the old Cheyenne Mountain Complex. Um, Sounds important. It is. It was. Yeah, and it was a. It was a. It was an interesting job. Got to see the acquisition silo world of the Air Force. We were part of a a, a group that uh, test and evaluate that major major systems purchases that the military procures work as contracted. So we were an independent uh, test and evaluation um, program to make sure that uh, the space defense upgrade that was in constant upgrade um, because it was all very computer-based, um, worked as, as, as initially contracted. So that um, sounds exciting and important and also borderline nerdy at the same time, but that's okay. You did it, it for very, one- very, nerdy. Yeah, you yeah. did it for one year and they said, yeah. and then you decided to go to med school. Where'd you go to med school? So I went to the University of Cincinnati. Um, yeah, going, going, to, going, to, going to med school was what I wanted to do. Um, and had a commander who was very um, supportive of that. So you got an yeah. HPSP scholarship then? I did. Yeah. Okay. So I was, I was HPSP. Um, did the 
did the obligated civilian route for both uh, residency and um, and and both both medical school and residency. So I ended up, um, and it was really in uh, med school where I got um, my first exposure to um, uh, global health and, and international medicine. Um, I was able to do an elective rotation. The school had a had a program uh, through the family med department actually where uh, they. Uh, would go down twice a year to uh, a village in Honduras, and uh, and the it was a, a partnership between the university and an NGO, non-governmental organization, that uh, ran this clinic uh, year round. And so the the med students, faculty, um, residents would go down, kind of do a big plus up of the clinic, and then there was a small clinic staff that in the intervening months would still be there to provide continuity of care for, for folks. Um, it was really, it was literally at the end of the road at that time, um, at the border between Honduras and El Salvador. So we were out in the sticks. Um, okay. And you guys yeah. didn't have language capability or cultural competency or um, uh, even um, expertise in medicine when you were doing that stuff though but it was uh, well actually you actually you know that was that was because it was an academic rotation um it was a it was a four it was a four-week elective and um we were two weeks on on the on the ground but the two weeks beforehand were uh that just in time training if you will uh for that so we were we learned medical spanish we got lectures on the culture um, and then when we were down on the ground, we were still doing lectures um, after seeing patients, right? You know, uh, it, there was a little bit of debriefing about patients as well, certain things. But then there would be different aspects about the the cultural care and kind of identifying that. And and part of the part of the finishing up the rotation was actually having a um, a presentation, a research project. On, on certain things you did so uh, the art the, the and and from being on the ground so part of mine was a very public health focus kind of the 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 going back to an old concept in family medicine the biopsychosocial approach and looking at the social determinants of health that in, in this particular community that were leading to some of the adverse health conditions that they were seeing so it's pretty clear to me then that um, you guys as medical students benefited from that trip. It seems pretty obvious how the, your, your school aligned it with learning objectives and things like that. Did the, oh, people, yeah. did the people benefit down there? Or oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, in a you real had, way? Oh, I'm being absolutely. tough on you now, I know. Yeah, yeah, because you had a, you had a standing clinic there with clinical staff all the, year, you know, um, year round. So they were um, that particular community um, because of partly because of the clinic actually saw an increase in, in economic prosperity, people coming in from around. Like I said, they were literally at the okay. end of the road. So it wasn't just like a two week med cap. Your, your school was actually there year round, 12 months a year, rotating you guys in and out a month at a time. The, the, the NGO was there, there year round, right? Okay. So, and and the NGO was affiliated with one of the faculty from the school, and then then 
that when the when the when the med students and their residents would go in, we were only allowed to bring like one suitcase because uh, the other the other suitcase we had was full of medicines and supplies that we were bringing down to stock up the clinic for you know for the four to five months between when the the next round of uh, uh, rotations were going to go on. So it was it was not a a two week and done sort of thing. These people got good continuity of care. You could put people on, if they had chronic diseases, you could put them on antihypertensives and they were gonna get good follow-up. If they had diabetes, you could start some diabetic treatment. Now you were limited, right? You had to be a little creative and you, and, and you didn't have the full range of diagnostics, uh, but there was, still, there was still an x-ray there. You had a, a rudimentary lab where you could do some basic, uh, basic, yeah. basic testing. So it was a lot, you know, that really, that really is, that was foundational for me. And I know in the military, we've talked a lot about the kind of in and out med cap sort of things, you know, and when I had this as an initial experience in, in my education and training, uh, it, it certainly has shown me what right looks like in a lot of ways. And really it's working with these civilian partners that are going to be on the ground. Yeah. So that was your first really cross-cultural global health engagement experience before that were you just like me grew up as a suburban white boy and somewhere in the continental united states and spoke yeah. english the whole time and all that yeah cincinnati yeah. ohio that's where i grew <laughs> up doesn't get uh, any more um middle america than that right i guess maybe nebraska middle 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 yeah, you're in nebraska yeah exactly and so um uh, yeah i mean didn't have a whole lot of um cross-cultural exposure um growing up um, across the board, you know, a very grew up, you know, kind of in a with with all the all the aspects of, you know, a very homogenous community yeah. uh, 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 environment. Uh, you know, I, I turned that on its head when I went to med school. You know, I was I, I lived in the I lived in the urban core, if you will, of the city, bought a house there. Um, I was you know, one of, yeah, I, I, I totally, I was, I was the, I was the outsider in that community and it was great. You know, I kind of, yeah. And got involved in the community too. Right. So uh, I, I was, um, I, yeah, so I don't know. I, I did, did what, what about West Palmer has a penchant for kind of, you know, Getting getting outside and, and and being being part and working working with other folks, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I'm assuming you signed up for that as an elective to go down to Central America or South America. I forgot what you said it was, and then you elected yeah. definitely to get involved in your inner city community there in in Cincinnati. Yeah. So those yeah. both that those both definitely uh, show an inclination towards the cultural competency uh, uh, skill set and things. Right. Um, and, Exactly. And I mean, we've got all sorts of examples of, you know, cross-cultural competency, even with our, in our U.S., right? I mean, so, yeah, if you, if you just kind of grow up in a, in a homogenous thing and you just say, yeah, I want to go out and do cross-cultural aspects, you know, outside the U.S., well, how, how, how are you doing it at home, too, right? So, so if essentially what you are is you're an inspiration to non-culturally experienced suburban white boys everywhere, potentially listening to this podcast, that there is hope for them. That they're not just limited to their homogenous 
hometown friend group that they grew up with, they actually can make a conscious choice to expand their horizons, both within the continent, United States and, and beyond. And if, if they don't, even if they don't become an Air Force International Health Specialist, they could at least try to model some of the skill set. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And inspiration right here we got on this podcast, the very first one. I love it. Um, so then you went from medical school to residency. Why did you choose family practice? So um, I chose family practice. Uh, well, my main, in, uh, my main interest, actually, and it still is, is, um, is public health um, and, and community health. Um, when I, and when I was doing my rotations in, in, um, in med school, and especially in PrevMed, I realized, you know, people that do PrevMed are kind of on the periphery. Um, they're not, they're not necessarily on the ground seeing, seeing patients day to day. And where the rubber meets the road in healthcare is in primary care. And so, and, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a kind of a jack of all trades kind of person. And so, um, family medicine just was the one that fit me because it, it, it hits, you know, cradle to grave, right? Um, even before, even before cradle. So, um, and where'd the Air Force send you after that? Well, then I went to residency, right? So I did my, uh, so I did my residency in with the University of Hawaii. Um, yeah, tough, tough location to do it. I know, but part of the reason I actually chose um, that program was because they had a strong international component. Um, they felt and still feel that they have a mandate with the um, they what what's called the Asia Pacific Basin, and uh, particularly a lot of the island communities uh, throughout the um, the Central and Western Pacific um, that, that the U.S. has affiliation with. So I got to do a lot of international electives um, and rotations, um, uh, about four of them. Um, Is that where you started picking up your language ability? Oh, I, I would say I started picking up my language ability in high school, right? And I think we all do, right? We mo Most high schools, if you're on a college prep course, you have to start learning a, an, another language. So mine was French at that time. But yeah, I started expanding it. So what, like I said, when in med school, we had to learn some medical Spanish to go down to Honduras. And, you know, I, when I was doing the, um, when I was, and, and, and throughout that time, let's see, in med school and, and residency, I was learning Thai. I was also uh, learning some Thai, kind of more colloquial because my spouse is, uh, her family is, is originally from Thailand. So, you know, to be able to speak with her grandmother, you know, uh, I, I learned I learned some Thai to be able to uh, communicate with her because otherwise I wasn't speaking with grandma. Uh, yeah, I just and, asked the question. So I remember you telling me before that you spoke some Thai and I wasn't sure where that came from. I thought maybe it was from your residency time in uh, in Hawaii. Yeah, no. And well, and then it, well, it, con it continued because one of my elective rotations was going out to Thailand and learning, learning um, uh, one of the alternative uh, medical uh, programs that that is used in, in Thailand is Thai traditional massage, um, which follows the, the, the theory and, and the practice of acupuncture, but doing that more in an acupressure um, uh, uh, model. And so, yeah, I was learning some of the therapeutic aspects of that. Um, I had to learn some Thai for that. Um, and, uh, but no, my, the, one, of the, one of the unique languages that I, I, I picked up um, well, well, in my residency was Marshallese because I would go down to the Republic of the Marshall Islands 
and and I did that for three different months each year of my residency and um, learned, uh, you know, but basic medical martialese, you know, learning how to say, you know, take one pill twice a day, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And then the Air Force, after that experience, the Air Force sent you where? To be an FP doc probably somewhere? Yeah. Um, continuing my penchant for internationalism. Um, yeah, I, I, I volunteered to go overseas and, uh, you know, being a, being a young doc, I didn't realize if you had Korea anywhere on your list, <laughs> you were going to go to Korea. Korea. Mm -hmm. So I had a, I had a, I had a wish list that listed just about every overseas base and on there were both bases in Korea. So the Air Force <laughs> saw your Thai language capability and said Korea. Oh, you know, you know how this, the assignment yeah. system works. They don't look at your language capability. They look if you put Korea down. We got a volunteer. He's going to Korea. And you did two years there or what? I did a year. A year? Okay, cool. All yeah. Right. And, 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 uh, and a little known thing at that time was that you could actually sign up uh, for language um, through the Ed Center. And I don't know if it's still, still doing this, where if you were wanting to acquire a second language, um, you could get uh, uh, tuition assistance and, and it was free tuition to okay. take, take a language course. So I, I, took, I took Korean at night. <laughs> I was going to ask if you started learning any Korean there, was that just too hard? I mean, that's, that's, that's too hard for someone like myself. I'll tell you that right now. There's no way Brad Botte can learn Korean. Actually, that, but... actually, it's a very easy language to read. It's an alphabet. Um, and a, and a, and a, um, so that made it very useful living in Korea to be able to read the street signs. Uh, and, and going around, uh, but as far as actually speaking and having a conversation, no, nah, I just need polite phrases. Um, and I, and you know, that was uh, nearly twenty years ago, so I've kind of forgotten most of it. All right. Well, one of my best friends going back to high school is Korean, and all I know is kimchi. But um, I guess that shows my lack of cultural competence. That's all I picked up on the whole time. But um, I would do hope to visit Korea uh, sometime soon. And after Korea, they sent you where to some place back in the states or something. Well, uh, no, Guam. Guam. Uh, okay. So I got my pick of choice, right? You know, you, you finish a remote unaccompanied uh, assignment um, of Korea, you're supposed to have your pick of choice, and, and I choose another. <laughs> uh, Guam. But okay. Guam. Yep. That was another year or two years? That, well, it was a two year assignment that turned into three. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. yeah. yeah. I ended up extending on, on, that, on that tour. So, uh, so now we're at like, you know, the turn of the century, give or take. Are we at like, what, 19? No, you were med school 2004. Uh, no, I, I, fin I finished. Yeah, I finished. Uh, I finished. It, 2002 was when I finished my residency. So we're already in the we're all, already in the aughts. OK. And then was it after that you joined the Air Force IHS program? So I learned about the nascent IHS program when I was in Korea. Um, there is a medical society of military medics called the 38th parallel medical society, and they were having a conference. So I was able to do my, um, I was able to get a, a CME TDY up to Seoul. Um, and, and, and some of the original IHSers from the PACAF IHS team were doing a course, um, on, Humanitarian Assistance Medicine, um, partly sponsored by the Center for Excellence in Disaster Medicine and Humanitarian Assistance. 
Um, and, and so I learned about the team. I made some contacts um, with the, the team members there and um, talked with the uh, team chief at the time, uh, who was a Colonel Randy Reynolds. And, you know, his advice, you know, I was a young doc. I was only a year out of residency, right? He, he was like, you know, you need to learn, come, you know, uh, uh, you need to still learn your trade a little bit more. Um, and so I initially went down to um, Guam in family medicine and then, and then uh, uh, trained then as a flight surgeon while I was there and, and then was able to move over to the contingency response group at Guam and got and became the uh, flight surgeon for, for, for that, for that unit. Um, and as uh, you know, un unfortunately, um, we had some major disasters that occurred while we were out there and, and the contingency response group was somewhat part of that, the, those response operations. One was the Indonesian tsunami out of Banda Aceh uh, the, the, uh, that, that occurred. Um, and then there was the um, a, a mudslide in the Philippines while we were on an exercise in the um, a, 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 for exercise Bala Catan. And you were yeah. involved in all of those before joining Air Force IHS. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Wow. So wow, the 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 contrast between your background before joining IHS and mine is dramatic. Um, but okay. Um, and then where did um, Air Force IHS send you after Guam then? So then I was able to, um, so while I was, while I was assigned with the contingency response group, I was able to get on, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't remember if I applied for my SCI first or I got my SCI after, but I was able to get on a mission uh, that the IHS team was doing in Madagascar. Uh, so that was my first experience um, uh, doing um, an IHS type of mission where we were doing some subject matter expertise exchanges in public health and, and, and trauma medicine. But then we also did some mini med caps and I got my first taste at, you know, the, uh, the, the, the limitations, the medical limitations of, you know, traditional med cap operations. Um, and, uh, and they, yep. Yeah, so from the, so from there, um, after doing that mission, you know, the team realized, that they wanted to hire me. And so um, I was lucky enough then to get hired onto the Pacific Air Force IHS team out, out in Hawaii when I concluded my uh, tour in Guam. Interesting. So just for the audience, they know that this is genuine, that um, I've never spoken with Colonel Palmer about any of this kind of stuff. I knew none of this information un until now. And um, uh, Colonel Palmer actually doesn't know what I might actually volunteer right now. But I think it's relevant to point out the contrast between your experiences building up to your entry into IHS um, and my own. Um, you actually sound like someone who truly had a multi-year extensive background in everything from cultural competency to overseas experience to operational kind of disaster response, kind of contingency medicine, if you will. Um, got the SCI or was kind of in conjunction with applying to IHS qualified for the SEI. Well, you actually went through about through the, the way I think it was designed to, to people out there who think they might want to do global health, um, but are not at all um, kind of thinking that they could ever follow in Colonel Palmer's footsteps. Um, maybe I could give them some hope with my own quick background. Um, I was a 
total white boy pediatrician pumping out patients at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma, just one after another. This is pre-Alta days, and I had my, my charts stacked up on my desk like two feet high at 4.30 p.m. And um, the um, Air Force colonel, who was the chief of medical staff, the SGH of the hospital, just randomly came by the clinic, and he dropped the Air Force Medical Corps newsletter um, on my desk, and he circled, and it said, apply to the Air Force IHS program, get a MPH at USISH, and then follow on to Southcom. And he said, you should do this. And I looked at the ad in the Air Force Medical Corps newsletter, and it listed like five or six bullets of, of things they were looking for. And it said language ability, cultural competency, um, overseas experience, and pretty much all the things you just described in your background. And I just looked at it real quick, and I said, uh, language ability. I took some high school Spanish, but can't speak it worth a darn. I said, um, overseas experience, don't have that. Operational kind of medicine, don't have that, blah, blah, blah. Cultural competency, I'm not cultural competent, blah, blah, blah. I said, I have none of the qualifications that they're asking for on here. And he said, oh, it's the Air Force. Just apply. You never know what's going to happen. There's no application fee. Just apply for it. He said, you're always, you know, BSing about international issues and stuff. Um, you know, you'd do fine. I was like, well, I mean, if I wasn't staring here at this two foot high stack of PEDS charts that all had to be filled out. I mean, I didn't mind seeing patients, but the charts weren't a lot of fun. So I went ahead and filled it out. And and then he took my application and he ran it around to the, the hospital commander and then the, the wing commander and they all signed it and some other general I never heard of signed it and endorsed it. And like 45 days later, I got a rip sheet that says I'm PCSing to USISH to join the Air Force IHS program. I was like, holy cow. I said, I am like the whitest, non-culturally competent, English only speaking, you know, suburban white boy and now I'm going to be an Air Force International Health Specialist. I was like, by God, that colonel was right. You don't need any qualifications in the Air Force to do stuff. Um, so, wow, that's what I was talking about, the contrast between your personal story and mine. And so, I mean, nowadays, like, people talk about having what's it called imposter syndrome. I mean, you talk about imposter syndrome. Here I am, like, Air Force International Health Specialist. My wife was like, how in the world are you an international health specialist? I mean, I had, like, just been to California for the first time, um, you know, like, when I met her a few years prior. Anyway, um, so then, you know, fast forward to 2008. I mentioned we were in Geneva, you know, overhauling the SEI criteria and, and um, when we broke for lunch and one person astutely mentioned that a lot of us didn't meet, you know, the criteria for that really high standard SEI, I realized even if they lower the standards, I wouldn't meet any of them. And so um, we went to break, went to lunch and Colonel Fike, remember Colonel Jim Fike, he was the director of the Air Force IHS program at the time. And on the break, I, I, had, I was like maximal imposter syndrome at this point right now. And so I was like, just ready to like, you know, throw myself on the, the um, you know, I got to admit that I'm a fraud here, people. I threw myself just on, on the table and I said, I said, Colonel Fike, I said, I just spent all morning listening to the debate about like, you know, all of these different qualifications of what should make an Air Force or National Health Specialist. And I said, I don't know how much you recognize it or not, but I have none of them, none of them. Okay, I am completely culturally incompetent. I have no language ability. I haven't deployed. I haven't lived overseas. I don't even like know anybody who's overseas. And I said, what am I doing here in Geneva in this four and a half star hotel to creating criteria of what other people need to meet to do what I'm doing? 
I said, I, I would feel totally guilty if like I had some kind of political connections that like got me this job or something like that. But I said, I applied and I didn't lie on my application or anything. I said, I said, and I also heard, I also heard there were five other Air Force Medical Corps officers who applied for the same one billet that I got. And I said, why did you guys pick me? And, and he said, Brad, 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 you know, Colonel Fike, he's a big burly guy. I'm, I'm a five, eight. He's like, you know, six foot something, big burly guy. He said, Brad, Brad, Brad. He was like smiling and he put his arm around my shoulder to comfort me and stuff. And he said, he said, you don't understand. And I thought he was going to tell me some big warm thing about like these special qualifications that I have that I just didn't recognize or something. And now uh, he said, Brad, 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 he said, you should have seen the other applicants. <laughs> and, and when he said that, right, when he said that from then on, uh, from that moment on, I told myself I am no longer going to have imposter syndrome because as inadequate as I am in 2007 or eight to be an Air Force International Health Specialist when I applied in 2006, as inadequate as I am, I was better than the other five Air Force Medical Corps officers who applied, objectively, according to Colonel Fike, at least, and his panel. So, so it sounds like you were one of the people who actually were qualified to join. And I think we both joined, give or take, around the same year and stuff. I'm not sure if you're with me in Geneva that year. but um, No, but anyway. I wasn't with you in Geneva because uh, I, was, I was too busy out executing missions, uh, yeah. usually our team. <laughs> uh, Man, I, I, worked, I worked my tail off working on that PACAF team. Uh, I was actually... On a three-year assignment, I was gone over a year and a half. Um, wow. It was tough. It was tough. I mean, that's tough. It was tough family life. I mean. So, so, so you left You left the three-year. It was a three-year Air Force PACAF. So that's the component command of Pacific Command. It yes. was a three-year assignment. And you left it after a year and a half um, because of the operational tempo? No. I was assigned there for three years. But my TDY op tempo was that I was on the road more than a year and a half of my tour oh so you were essentially tdy slash deployed give or take whatever you want to call it for for 50 yeah, percent of the time your yeah but tempo I, was 50 percent out of station yeah a little oh, more you were like a marine not an air force person right yeah okay. yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah yeah i better i bet our marines listening to this might uh, probably got a kick out of that but yeah okay interesting yeah I, so while actually and I, and i got to i got to like do some field work with the marines actually before I, when i was uh when we did that uh uh, mudslide uh, disaster relief. I was part of a, a patient evacuation mission, and to go get the patient, I actually uh, um, had to uh, uh, RON the night before, and the the Marines were bunked up in a house that was under construction, and you know we were we were sleeping you know uh, feet to head kind of you know shoulders uh, wow. with, on the floor on the floor and. and uh, yeah, I, I was sleeping in my own really nice four and a half star hotel in Geneva. We were like touring the you know International Red Cross Museum and the WHO's headquarters and having a grand old time while you were sleeping toe to head or whatever they call it, right? In, yeah, uh, yeah, on a concrete floor. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I didn't. Well, thank have, thank yeah, you for your I service, sir. I, I, I didn't have a I didn't have a bivy mat either. You know, I was just. Uh, <laughs> I was just sleeping on my poncho or whatever I brought with me. Um, Thank yeah. you for your service. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I got I I I have my marine appreciation uh, TDY within a TDY. 
Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. what years were you at um, uh, PACAF then? I was there from 06 to 09. Okay, excellent. Okay, that's when I was at Joint Forces Command, which they've now shut down. I was yeah. there like 07, 010. Okay, so after 2009, where'd you go after that? So then I got assigned to the U.S. Africa Command on the as an IHSer on at the COCOM level. So uh, Africom in, in Germany had, in Germany had just stood up, and um, part of the initial vision was Africom was going to be a dispersed command and have regional engagement teams. Um, actually, uh, initially, it was going to be that the regional engagement teams would uh, would be assigned and placed, like the headquarters would still be in Germany, but you'd have these regional engagement teams on the continent in, in each of the five geographic, kind of the major regions of, of Africa. Of Africa. And um, that so, didn't yeah, work out. It didn't work out. But yeah, so I was, I was, I was, you know, on the, so they had, they had somebody on the books for West Africa and West Africa is highly um, uh, francophone. Um, and since, you know, I had a French back, uh, you know, I had a French background. I took the DLPT in French. I minored in French at, at, at the Air Force Academy. So, you know, I had that, I had that linguistic background, though I hadn't been using it. <laughs> yeah. I was learning, I was learning Asian languages. I was learning Thai and Lao uh, when I was assigned out in PACAF. Um, I got really good. I got really good at French. <laughs> yeah. So for, for for those in the audience who don't know, I remember that time period. This was the Bush administration. They wanted to have a whole new focus on Africa. It was thought to yep. be the next big, um, you know, field of operations in the war on terror, um, potentially moving from the Middle East. And so they stood up Africom. And the original intent. You can correct me if I'm wrong in this history, but my recollection is the original intent was to create a big, you know, four-star headquarters combatant command on the continent of Africa. And if I'm not mistaken, they couldn't get a single country to accept it. Then they decided for political no, reasons. No, that's that's not true. That's not true. They had they had countries that wanted to accept it, but then the optics of kind of where you're putting you're putting this headquarters here, but now you're disenfranchising this ones. this this area there. And Af people people underestimate the size of Africa. Africa's huge, and it's not monolithic. I mean, and so yeah. But anyway, go on. So they didn't want to show favoritism with a single major combatant command um, in one spot. Okay. So right. then then I remember hearing about they were going to do like five different regional commands just because of what you said that Africa is not monolithic and it's absolutely geographically enormous. So they were going to do five different geographic kind of like subcommands and mm -hmm. that that didn't work out i thought i heard because of politics and resistance at local areas and that sort of thing does that sound right well partly that i mean you, you still had you still had some countries that were willing to accept you right um so i think for west africa uh liberia um being a, a country that's made up of uh, originally ex-freed slaves was willing to, uh, you know, host, host that regional engagement team. But um, it was just, I mean, Liberia at that time was not too far out from their civil war. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and everything going on with that. So um, there was the whole aspect. If you, if you end up putting the regional engagement team down there, uh, you got people, it, it just really became a 
that personnel management thing? How are you, you can't really PCS people in with their families and they're going to have to go unaccompanied, but now you've assigned people on three-year tours, but then you're going to move them on. It just, so it just became yeah. a, 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 a personnel management side of things. That's what I was thinking about too in this this was, I never saw this published anywhere, and I didn't see anybody really admit it publicly in any big speeches or anything like that. But was the real was one of the big problems why they didn't do that is what you're hinting at right now, in that there just aren't enough people in the Air Force or the Army or the the, the active duty military willing to volunteer slash be voluntold to deploy or or PCS to Africa oftentimes unaccompanied for multiple years in five different places. Like we just don't have the bench for that, right? I mean, we basically have a hard enough time getting Korea and places like that filled. Establishing yeah, five different regional commands in Africa, that's, I mean, as much as we like to say we're all internationally inclined people, we didn't have people want to volunteer for that, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are. I'm not a, I'm not a personnelist and, and to kind of know what the bench looked like. But, okay, you know. cool. Yeah. Okay. I'm just, a, I'm a speculating person. I mean, I mean, it's, it's not a bad speculation. I mean, I, yeah, I, you know, it's a lot easier to assign people in areas where, you know, they can go with their families. Uh, they don't have, they don't have to have a, you know, a robust uh, force protection uh, posture um, when, when they, when they are around, um, you know, it, yeah. I mean, and and the and, and when force protection it might just be crime, right? I mean, in in the sense of, okay, no travel at night because you know crime goes up at night. I mean, that was a typical thing for us um, when we would travel is you know just be off the roads, you know, not out not out outside the capital region, you know, after dark because you, you, your your security profile changes drastically. Yeah. Um, and, and using the Liberia example, uh, you know. I mean, the, the, the rebel groups were still around in, in the hinterlands. So you, you had to be concerned about that. So yeah, the capital of Monrovia, yeah, you'd be okay, but you just didn't want to be outside of Monrovia after dark. Yeah. So then you did you had three years in Germany then, I guess you brought your family with you and, uh, and then where'd you go after Germany? So actually I did four in Germany. Uh, once again, uh, ex- got, got a chance to extend out there. Um, and I was, I was at a career crossroads at that point in time. Um, I was trying to, should I stay or should I go now kind of thing. And, um, and, um, my bosses wanted me to stay. Um, and, uh, the PACAF international health specialist team wanted me to stay. And so, uh, I got rehired back to PACAF to then become the team chief. As a full-time IHS billet. Okay, excellent. As a full-time IHS billet, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So that's jumping to another one of those. Um, so in both places, in Germany and in PACAF, you were in one of those, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, one of those 65 full-time billets that the Air Force IHS program staffs, yep. essentially, right? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Exactly. So you're yeah. at PACAF then for three or four years? Uh, four years there. Four years. Yeah. What, what four years were those? We're talking 2000, what to what, give or take? That would be 13 to 17. Okay, so that's during the pivot to Asia period. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Right, right after the pivot to Asia period, pretty much. Right. To pivot yeah. to yeah. Pivot to yeah. Pacific. Yeah. 
Okay, so you were basically, you jumped combatant command to combatant command right as the focus, the national focus was shifting because it was shifting to Africa just as you got to AFRICOM and it was yeah. shifting to Asia just before you got there. So yeah, you lucked out in terms of getting all the attention. All right, and then you went, you did four years then in uh, PACAF and then what after that? Well, and then I got, um, then I got selected for promotion to Colonel and then became um, the director at headquarters. The director of the Air Force IHS program. And now you've been the director from 17 until this summer, is that right? Yeah, this summer, so four years. Excellent. And then now retiring. Excellent. What an interesting career. So yeah, far far more interesting than anything I can um, come up with. So yeah, my impossible, you, 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 hearing your story is kind of like regenerating all of the feelings of imposter syndrome that I had from so long ago. So, but I, um, uh, well, uh, I don't want to get into your psychoanalyzing your imposter syndrome, yeah. but I mean, when we were standing up the program, you know, I mean, it, it was, there was a program to stand up. Right. And so we needed, we needed, need we bodies. needed people and, and you can train people onto this. And, 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 and clearly, I mean, you've found a good niche and you've been trained and now you're training others. So that, yeah. has, that has worked out very favorably for global health engagement writ large. As a program, are you better now at keeping people like me out? Uh, I would say yes. Okay. Um, that's, that's reassuring to hear. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, part of our, part of our um, application process for the, um, the, the formal education programs that, that you've talked about are either hold the SEI or are SEI eligible, you know, special experience. Okay fire eligible. So we, we do screen on that. Um, and, but I mean, but I mean, fundamentally, I mean, you, you still want to, if you can train people up, you don't want to disqualify trainable folks. Right. Um, and so uh, even if somebody does not hold the SCI, but you know, they come with a commander endorsement and they, and they're coming with, you know, the, the, then the right attributes to that they are trainable, then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give them a consideration. Certainly. Excellent. Excellent. Speaking of training, if we can just pivot a short bit to uh, education and training. Um, I actually got a question here from a student who texted me last night, unrelated to this interview, but texted me last night. This represents a question that I get all the time. And I never know the right answer. You are far better qualified to answer this question than me. But basically the question is always comes down to what can someone do to get smart on global health engagement fairly quickly? I mean, if, if someone's got a year and a half to spend, my answer is of course, sign up for USU's global health graduate certificate program. But for people who don't have that time, what should they do? Specifically, the student last night texted me, hey, sir, I've got one of my corpsmen doing a special operations deployment to Southeast Asia starting this summer. And we're recording this thing here in beginning of May, almost, almost May. Um, he's going to be coordinating with the embassy to get atmospherics and integrate from a medical perspective with the important groups in the region, a lot of global health type stuff. Any recommendations on getting him up to speed so he can communicate intelligently with state NGOs and partner nation personnel? I've started him with the DODI for global health engagement, the, not, the nine principles, which is Natsios's nine principles, and other wave top info. But what for this person who's i guess going to be there this summer in a couple months do we have what advice do you have for this person do we have anything i mean cghe used to do the foggy course and that has been 
um, run out now of funding? What, what would you, how would you answer this text? I think they're still doing foggy in, in, in certain uh, capacities, but my, my advice is reading, you know, um, uh, getting into, getting into newspapers, getting into the, the, uh, you know, for, for contemporary issues that are going on. Um, you know, if they can get, um, you know, uh, new, uh, new news sources um, that have an international presence, uh, a broad international presence like the New York Times, um, um, Washington Post, uh, those sorts of things, um, or, um, or even the local newspaper. So if they're going out to Thailand, you know, Bangkok Post, um, something like that, and, and reading about that. Also, uh, books that are kind of written on the regions, you know, both um, maybe uh, history, you know, history books or even historical fiction or fiction books that kind of uh, talk about and, and, and getting, in, getting into that. I think that gives a good kind of uh, scene setting. Uh, certainly, you, you can get, you know, basic demographic Im information from like, uh, sites like uh, the World Fat Factbook that the CIA produces, and it's not classified, it's open source, you know, that'll kind of give you that kind of the background of kind of what, what's going on in that country, just from a data standpoint. Um, and then certainly from health side of things, um, WHO usually has a variety of things, um, and then their regional uh, bodies as well. Um, but I, I, I would think, you know, dig it, dig it. But I, I really, I really, if you've got to prioritize anything, I think it's important to kind of understand kind of what the contemporary issues are going on from news, and then to understand if you want to get a little bit more into the historical background on kind of why that country is how they are today reading either historical novels or historical fiction are good. Yeah, that's so interesting that you actually mentioned uh, the newspapers too, especially mentioned the Washington Post and uh, New York Times. Uh, in our courses, our students end up actually needing to subscribe to the New York Times because I link to more than the number of articles per month that they can get for free. So yeah, right. I'm, I'm uh, glad you have that endorsement. Okay, yeah, and I mean, there's other ones out there. I mean, not, I mean, I just gave the U.S. ones. I've just got like BBC that's got a big huge broad international presence and i think they do a good job as well kind of with their worldwide coverage and actually you know do a lot better than we do it, it kind of i think balancing out kind of their perspective on what they cover worldwide on a day-to-day -day. Yeah. when you're limited for content uh to be able to put put in put into um in whatever whatever you're doing you, you got that yeah. So as the uh, director of the Air Force IHS program then for the past three and three quarter years or so, you've essentially had oversight and kind of policy, whatever guidance oversight of, of all the people doing IHS stuff around the world. Um, I noticed in the quarterlies, the GHE quarterlies you guys produce, you profile so many different um, interesting things going on. But I, maybe I'll ask you, of, of all the programs um, that you mentioned in the quarterlies or even ones that weren't mentioned in there, which one would you, um, which ones are you, are you most proud of or you find most interesting to talk about for, for this audience potentially listening to this podcast? Like what program going on anywhere in the world while you were the director, one you think kind of um, represents IHS and its capabilities and its value um, that you'd like to, uh, to talk about? 
I mean, I got like the APORA program, the embedded health engagement trains in my notes, um, all these other things that pulled out your things. Uh, Cope North, Flintlock, Cobra Gold. Well, which, which one would you like to, uh, to share with this audience? Well, I, I, I don't, it, it would be hard for me to say that any one of these that I'm most proud of, because these aren't my, these aren't my programs. These aren't my initiatives. These are, these are, it, we take a decentralized approach towards, you know, program management and execution and identifying, right? Um, that, that is done through the combatant commands and those, and, and, and then the component, component teams supporting that combatant command. Um, so that's where that's managed. Those are, they're their programs um, at, at, the, at the headquarters Air Force level where we are. You know, we set Air Force policy and make sure that we're providing, you know, the properly, you know, the proper, you know, the proper personnel that they're trained and equipped to do the mission out there. Um, so, um, you know, I think, you know, all of these I'm, I'm extremely proud of. Um, and, and in the sense that you see a maturing of how we're engaging with, with, with our partners, that we're focused on different aspects of um, capability and capacity that are, are needed to be um, focused on and, and they continue to do that. So, you know, APORA is a good example of a multi-year initiative and effort that's focused on um, pandemic preparedness. And we see now a renewed interest in, in that. And, you know, I think APORA, you know, because it's been going on for so long, provides, you know, that framework. You, you don't have to go out and establish trust with those partners. The trust is built. So now that um, additional funding probably is going to flow down in the next year or two, I'd imagine, um, and an interest um, that you've got a, you got a framework from which to grow. And, and that we I, ideally have trained people in the Air Force to be able to to understand what the mission set is and to be able to grow the mission set and and pull in those other people across this both within the Air Force and other services because it's going to take a you know a, it, from a DoD perspective it's going to take you know not just one service doing this and then from a from a from a U.S. perspective it'll take a whole of government and certainly it's not just the U.S. government doing this. It's going to take, you know, a whole of the world. Um, and I think the vice president was at the U.N. yesterday or the day before just talking about this type of stuff um, on, on yeah. pandemic preparedness. And so, um, you know, I think we, what, we, what makes me most proud is the fact that we've got well-trained people out there doing great missions across the board. And so, like, Cope North is that, you know, it's a – it's an ongoing effort. It's maturing the relationships year after year or not. And so then that's what APOR is doing. You know, EHET is not necessarily a, um, a, a maturing relationships right now. It's a concept development, but it's also a concept development to get us away from doing those medcaps that we've kind of talked to. Um, and when I say medcap, the, the term medcap in and of itself is not bad, but it's been meant to use direct patient care missions. And EHET is still a direct patient care mission, but it's changing the framework on how we do that. And so that we're getting training benefit for our U.S. medics, that they're getting out there and, and into um, those austere environments. And they're getting away from the, you know, the 
first world digitized, um, got, got robust diagnostics, can do everything, you know, send it to an Uber specialist if I don't know what it is. Medi medicine that we practice in, in our current standard of care, and not that you're lessening the standard of care per se, but the standard of care is different in these other countries. And you're, you're having to learn to practice medicine to that standard of care, but still provide good care, right? And then how do you do that when you don't have everything that you've been trained to do through your medical training? And so the EHET is a great concept and it's gonna make our medics if we can roll that out across the board and we can roll that into a, a training platform for our medics, it's going to make our medics that much better for contingency environments that they may find themselves in, whether it's a peacetime contingency or, you know, disaster relief, you know, humanitarian ops, or it's wartime contingency. And fundamentally, we're here to support a wartime mission. And, and, if, and, if, we find our, and if we find ourselves better to be able to support that mission, then and we're able to use the EHEP for that, then it's great. So everything you just mentioned is all goodness and it yeah. all it all advances the program. And when you say the EHET, you're talking about the embedded health engagement team. Yeah, sorry I didn't spell out that acronym for the Oh, that's all right. Yeah, the embedded health engagement team. And yeah. um they that is essentially instead of the go somewhere for two weeks and do clinical medicine and then leave. In my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the embedded health engagement team takes a couple people or a few people, puts them in a certain location, hospital, clinic, somewhere in a low-income, middle-income country of interest, partnering, embedded in with the local health system there, working side-by-side -side for, I think, was it six months or a year? And then they replace them with new people with some overlaps so that the local clinic, local hospital where they're working has continuous involvement of U.S. medical people. Does that sound right or do I have it wrong? It, well, I, I, it, that's one potential, right? Um, that you could have a continuous presence, but that takes, that takes funding and authority and permissions from the country and, and everything like that. So uh, as it's been field tested right now, it's been done on a limited basis where you're sending people out um, uh, and and you're doing it for a few weeks at a time. But still, you, the, 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 the fundamental piece of this is not the time duration, but it's the fact that, yeah, you're sending in small teams, four to five person, into existing healthcare facilities working, not displacing uh, those folks, but you're embedding within there, in there, and you're working alongside with. Yeah. So um, you're finishing up a successful tour here as uh, the director of the Air Force International Asbestos Program. Several other people have done that before you, though. We've had Colonel Wynn, Colonel Fike, and Colonel Chambers, and I'm missing someone else, too. What none of them have done, though, is none of them have led the program through a worldwide pandemic. Uh, you were director of the Air Force IHS program during COVID-19, uh, which I think everybody's saying is the worst pandemic since the Spanish flu. How did that, that came like right, right, like almost in the middle of your tour. And um, how did you have to adjust operations? I mean, Air Force IHS people are all about international travel and doing stuff internationally. And then all of a sudden, every airport in the world is shut down and uh, restrictions everywhere. How did you adjust operations on the fly to keep achieving the objectives of the Air Force IHS program, given those constraints? So 
once again, you know, these are not my operations at the headquarters level, right? These are the operations for those respective combatant commands um, and, 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 their, and their supporting components. So they're the ones who have adjusted operations. We're here to support and, and to make sure that they have the right people um, and that they have and, you know, and, 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 that, and, and to provide them appropriate policy guidance as needed. Um, but what the teams have done have um, been able to continue their relation because relation continue their relationships right and and they found that to be able to do that through virtual engagements and so they have because they've already had a network and relationships built up they're able to sustain those relationships and continue on collaborating through mute topics of mutual interest and benefit through through virtual platforms um, in the in the in the in Southcom AOR um, uh, AF South has done engagements on uh, transporting of patients um, in a in a COVID environment, right? So how do you successfully trans transport patients aeromedically um, and safely um, when you're worried about infectious disease risk and and partners in the region have done that, and 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 they've been able to convene multilateral um, virtual seminars where they're kind of talking about best practices and sharing that across, and that's and that's been replicated across the the different commands. Um, it from from our level, it has been a little bit different difficult because of. of training venues uh, and, and training our people and getting getting people uh, continuing that that training um you know our ihs orientation course uh, went on a pause we had to provide some policy um uh, changes as far as kind of training requirements for folks um as far as their timelines to get their training um but you know getting people uh, uh pcs'd um in, into teams that hasn't changed um so you know we're still we're still trying to get people out as, as people rotate um uh, people are still showing up to uh, schools and getting mphs at ucius and they still need to move on and so um that continues um yeah. it just continues a little differently yeah for the for people who are more interested listening to this podcast and more interested in the things that the program did during COVID, there's actually a good amount of information in the Global Health Engagement Quarterlies um, that I kind of came across. And I'll, uh, I'll post all those, as I mentioned, in the information page that goes along with this podcast for anybody hey, who's hey, uh, hey, interested in that. We, before mm -hmm. we move off on COVID, though, I, I do want to say, you know, one of, the, one of the things, you know, I'm really proud of is uh, how our partners um, demonstrated their, their capability um around the world you know our allies and partners and those folks that we've worked with um and 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 there's a lot of and, th and that's what there's a lot of good examples in in that information that you're talking about and you know the old adage is that the time in a disaster it, the time to exchange business cards is not during a disaster before the disaster right and so that's a that's a big aspect about disaster preparedness and, and, and preparedness planning um, and what we've done through the years working with our partners has been just that, you know, there wouldn't be, there wasn't, 
and 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 our partners have showed their various aspects of of capability. So in 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 Europe, it was some of the role one work that they've done on you know and role one is your basic outpatient clinic but it's a contingency environment you know some of in role two uh, more of a field hospital some of the support that the military partners that we've worked with have been able to provide domestic support a lot like we were doing here in the u.s you know uh, supporting alongside existing healthcare facilities uh, and providing that additional infrastructure in yeah excellent Excellent. Yeah. How does the future of the Air Force IHS program look given, you know, major budget cuts coming around through that defense wide review? I think they called it over the past uh, two years or so. How does um, the funding stability, security of the funding for the Air Force IHS program and its billets look, uh, in your opinion, uh, over the next several years? Well, I think it's all about, you know, demonstrating first demonstrating value. Right. You know, I mean, you can show value, but I mean, when you demonstrate value and then you're even, uh, you know, that's, that, that, that's key. And, and, and when it comes to those aspects of defense-wide review, uh, it's how have you advanced um, fundamentally the national defense strategy, right? And one of the key tenants currently in the national defense strategy is enhancing our relationship and our ability to operate with our allies and partners. And I think we've got uh, some great qualitative examples of kind of how we've worked very effectively with our partners. Our partners have been able to work more effectively in their own environments um, with, you know, and, and, and have, you know, mitigated, um, you know, needs, needs for us to, to be there. Right and and, yeah. and bond. Um, so you know, I think continuing to demonstrate that value as we align to strategy is, is key. And and when it comes down to resourcing, um, apparently that's how the resourcing decisions are made. Are you supporting the national security strategy? Are you supporting the national defense strategy? And how 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 effective are you in doing that? That's actually a perfect segue into the the last thing I was thinking about there is in terms of showing the value in the national defense strategy and things like that. From my perspective, and I got you here on here to correct my perspective if it needs correcting, the value of the Air Force IHS program has been shown dramatically in peacetime, in what planners might call phase zero operations, uh, in, um, you know, those kinds of, uh, what do they call it? Well, Mattis had another term for it too, like uh, environment shaping operations or something like that. Did, did does does IHS do better, or is it almost exclusively successful in the phase zero peacetime operations, but has been more challenged in the in the actual kinetic theaters? I think it's I think it's just one of those things that you know hasn't been known by at, at the COCOM level because the COCOM is the one who puts together the the manning requirements for that particular theater um and 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 and, and specifying specifying the capabilities that they need to have and the, requ- the requirements that they have um and so it, um so you, you source capability to requirements and um and so if the cocom hasn't identified that as a requirement then it doesn't get sourced um and and but there are great examples i you know general rob when he was a centcom surgeon 
back in, you know, 2005-ish timeframe, 2006, you know, um, had great examples of, 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 of medics, um, IHS medics being out working across, um, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, working with partners, working on interoperability um, issues. Um, and, and so there is a role right um and there and 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 it's been sh shown to you know <laughs> help the operations work out better it was just done ad hoc it wasn't on part of a, a manning document uh for um for the the joint task force or, or or whoever was going out there as we continue to have more experienced international health specialists and global health specialists from the navy at COCOM staffs to be able to communicate across the different directorates. And it's really out of the J3 when you're planning operations, you stand up operational planning teams. When that J3 um, operational planning team is stood up and determining requirements and manning, um, being there and having a seat at the table to be able to say, yep, yeah, you're gonna want, this is a requirement you're going to have and this is how this is the capability you want to ask for to fill that requirement um and rather than doing an ad hoc and off the cuff um, yeah thank yeah yeah thanks for that um i also noticed too in your quarterlies there were a number of mentions of people who have done operations or missions or things like that during uh, very big kinetic environments um they can look for those through there and i'm aware personally of a, a couple others too so there are those they're just um they're much less familiar and frequent i think than the the ones we have during peacetime but uh, good yeah. stuff the other thing i want to ask you too um a lot of people who might listen to this podcast are not in the air force they're in the navy the army public health service uh we have civilians now join this program our educational program from the um, usaid and also the center for disease control and uh potentially this podcast might be listened to well beyond that but um the air force created this program um, we can brag we were the first in 2001 even though it wasn't you and me, um, our service, our forebears um, created this thing, mainly Dr. Waller and Dr. Ward and General Carlton and things like that. But um, the Navy, was it fair to say the Navy did a, hey, what about me, me too kind of thing? And they created their program kind of copying us. They recognized the value. I mean, can we, can we take some service pride there and say that we were the first, they recognized how awesome and how valuable we were. And they said, we're gonna create one of our own and if my memory serves me correct, they created their Navy AQD additional qualification designator for global health engagement. I don't know, was it 2009-ish timeframe? They've been running with it since then. The Army, it looks to me like the Navy's pretty much mirroring the Air Force IHS program. Um, we can have one of them on the podcast to describe me on that if they want. The Army has not done anything in that domain. Um, when students ask me about this, my understanding is that the army kind of just says well you know that stuff you guys are calling global health engagement and the special experience and the qualifications that can be done by our folks in civil affairs we don't need to create new billets we don't need those 65 new billets that the air force has and that's my general understanding of how the services kind of lay this down and we don't have a we don't have a joint global health specialist possibly because the navy thinks it has unique mission sets and the army just hasn't agreed to play along yet. Is my understanding correct or am I missing something? 
What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, you agree that we're the best. We can establish well, that first. Well, we, we certainly, we certainly were the first, right? And, and, and we've got the most mature program. So I think by default, that makes us the best. Yeah. So we can take some service pride, right? There we go. Uh, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, the Navy, and, are they doing a good job? Or are they the doing, okay. No, the Navy's doing a good job. Um, Not great, though. Well, <laughs> that's, hey, that's you saying it. I work closely with my Navy colleagues, and they, they are, they are, they're trying their, they're trying their darndest. The problem is, is, you know, we were able, we were able to stand up this program in a growth phase, right? It was early in early, early times of the global war on terror, 9-11. Um, it just happened shortly after, you know, services were growing. There wasn't a constraint on manpower, right? And you had this, and yet, and it, and it doesn't hurt when you got the, the, the Surgeon General saying this is a priority program for me. Um, uh, you know, it, I think it's taken you know the Navy a little while to eventually, as leadership sees what has been done in this environment, and 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 action officers have been briefing this up and those action officers become uh senior leaders um you know that that's that's what it's taken you know for the navy but uh you know to to get where they are now that's my under that's looking from the outside that's not any inside information there it's kind of looking from the outside at that um but what what is hard now for the navy is you know we're in a we're not a, we're in a manpower reduction period in the military health system right and and where people are giving up billets over to dha to do different different tasks that dha needs to do and so um uh trying to trying to trying to grow manpower authorizations and billets to do global health when the rest of your when the rest of your operations are being re looking at taking cuts it's it, it becomes challenging to get those positions so um, I think that's where the Navy is currently um, a little having a, having a little hard time. It, you know, they'd like to have teams set up like we do uh, from a Navy perspective, but they just can't have the same sort of numbers that, that, that the Air Force has, has the luxury of currently having. Interesting. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, it's my perspective on, 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 on the, um, on the service comparisons and colonel palmer you're retiring this summer i think you told me you are heading to the well, the university of hawaii to continue doing uh global health type stuff is that right if it works out i'm gonna yeah i'm well, doing a good work for you yeah doing some faculty development with them and we'll see how long how long that lasts for we totally i totally appreciate you volunteering bravely volunteering to be the guinea pig trial bunny whatever you want to call it volunteer for this effort of making these podcasts i think this is um something that uh, i hope our, our audience enjoys and you will probably inspire other potential guests to join us uh, on here so thanks so much for uh, coming on and and giving this a shot um is there something you wanted to say to our, our audience or a potential audience that i forgot to mention or or anything uh, along those lines yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people have a lot of interest in, in this field of work, and, and that's clear to me through the years. Um, and, 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 you know, it's the, 
I often get asked um, how one of the one of the things I hear from people is how can I get more Air Force missions or or, or those sorts of things. You know, those are and, and my advice is you know there's relatively speaking there's we don't have a lot of Air Force missions for the demand out there for people that want to do. So don't sit around and, and or other from other services as well, from other services. Don't wait around for those missions to come to you. If you're interested in this and you're interested in international health, you got to seek it out. Um, and you got to either got to and you got to find it. Then um, it's not necessarily going to be the missions planned by you know, the international health specialist teams or different COCOMs that, that you should seek out. You know, um, I think finding those duty assignments that provide you international exposure, global exposure, that may have you deployed or tasked to work with international partners, those are key. And then just getting out and, and working with private volunteer organizations, non-governmental organizations internationally. But like I said, also close to home, you can still do a lot of work um, that's outside of kind of your your, your own all of us have our own kind of cultural background where we're a multicultural country so getting involved working with other communities demonstrating and doing it genuinely right just don't do it to check a box do it because you want to um yeah and 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 so that would be my big advice to folks yeah thanks for that yeah you don't have to go to a very low-income country to to do this kind of outreach uh, you definitely can do it right, probably in your local community. Even if you are in a middle income or a higher income community, there are probably pockets within the, your community within uh, where you live, where our listeners live now, uh, where they could make a difference. Um, Kelly, any uh, last words or thoughts or anything? Um, there, one uh, thing to mention, there is a Becoming an IHS document that has some helpful information on the AFMS IHS program page. And also, there is a uh, new, the SEI qualifications were recently updated. Is that correct? Oh, okay, excellent. So this will be the first quarter with the new requirements. So I, I think people should, should check that out if they haven't. Thanks. So, so to all our listeners out there, yes, definitely check out that page. Um, even though we're recording this podcast now in April of 2021, Kelly and I will work to keep it updated uh, and relevant with the newest information as uh, time proceeds. Um, that's all I have. Um, so uh, thanks to everyone who has uh, listened. Thanks to Colonel Palmer for coming on and uh, thanks to Kelly. And I look forward to um, working with both of you uh, going forward. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Kelly. Yep. Appreciate the, the time and the chat. Excellent.